this class is, um, is a download um, of information. But the purpose of this class is not to give you a download of information. The purpose of the class is to actually give you a picture of Israel. It'd almost be like a picture of the story of God. Give you the picture of the Bible, what's in between the Bible, what's after the Bible. And so what happens is that when we're teaching the class, I will tell you that you, um, I'm going to go so fast. And what I mean by fast, I'm not going to try to talk fast. That's not what the goal is. But I'm just trying to hit the big things, the big themes that are carrying the Bible, um, that are carrying the country um, of Israel. So we're going to talk about Moses today. And uh, just as we're, you know, give you an example of how I'm trying to work this out of how we can do it. And I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, because it might be really boring. Um, or it might be too much information and people might switch off. Um, so I'm trying to evaluate to see how successful it is. The problem is I can't slow down too much or uh, we'll be in this for 10 years <laughs> and uh, still not get through it or still not even touch the surface. So I'm trying to find the speed of what to go through and trying to just give you a general picture of things. So we actually completed the book of Genesis. You should have a general picture of the book of Genesis. You see the anchor of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and Joseph. You just completed Genesis. And I know that's a lot of information, but I just wanted you to take the picture of Genesis and, and, oh, that's what's going on in Genesis. And that statement right there gives you a full understanding of Genesis. We didn't talk about creation, but that gives you a full understanding of Genesis and where we're going in regards to going to Israel. So today, we're going to go through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're not going to do Deuteronomy. It'll take me about three minutes to do Deuteronomy next week. <laughs> I mean, that's how fast we're going, just to let you guys, just to let you guys know. But we're going to travel all the way through those books. And what I mean by those books is that we're hitting exactly what's going on in the books. And so just relax. Don't, you know, oh, I've got to have all this information. Just relax as we go from subject to subject to subject. And we're hitting what's going on just for you to give you a picture of what's taking place in the Bible and the theme of what's happening, uh, of what's happening in the Bible. So today... We're going to travel through Moses' life. Oh my goodness, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's about a year's worth, but we're going to do it in one day. We have to talk um, about the Exodus, because the Exodus has extreme importance. Um, we have to put Jesus in there, because the story is all about Jesus. So we're going to talk about Jesus in there as well. Um, we also have to talk about um, the law. I mean, how can you talk about Moses and not talk about the law? And then we have to talk about the tabernacle. What's the class on? Israel. We're moving towards something, which is the temple. Well, we've got to talk about the tabernacle. So, and we've got about 35 minutes to do it. So, we will travel rather quickly, but it'll be more, not less than quickly, it'll be just more information, but just to get that picture of what's going on as we're walking uh, towards Israel. So, here is a, a map of Israel. Just a fast recap. You have Mesopotamia. Oh, I better turn this on. Hopefully, it still works. That does work. Okay. We have Mesopotamia right here. What's the Mesopotamia? Mesopotamia is in between two rivers, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. And since those two rivers are right there, I will tell you that it is extremely lush, 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 lush country. And when we look at empires, what do they want to do? They want to conquer Mesopotamia, all the way from the Persian, the Syrian, all these empires we're going to talk about because it is extremely lush country. And then you also have some really lush country here. What's down here? You have Egypt. And we talked about the Nile River last week. 
Um, you see an extreme amount of lush. This is another empire that is down here, a dynasty that is down there. And then you have Israel that is, is right here, and it is a passageway through this empire, this large empire dynasty, and then here is Israel right here. So you'll see that it's a hot piece of real estate that many, many people want all the way through, and that's why it's conquered 44 times in the life, um, the life of Israel. You'll also see that there's a continent up here. What's up here? Europe. You see Asia right here. You see Africa right here. You see Israel just being a tiny little state. If you're going to transport, you've got to walk through Israel because you don't cross the desert. You walk through Israel when Abraham was given that promised land. So I just wanted to show you that to just show you the strongholds um, of the area in the time. Stronghold here, stronghold there, and a stronghold here. But who's here? Right now, we're talking about the Egyptians are there. They've taken this stronghold. You see a lot of rich green land here. Why do you see that rich um, green land? You see that there, how rich it is? Talk about the Nile and how it floods. And as the Nile floods, it expands the irrigation. And that's why the empire is, um, is settled there. That richness that you see uh, here, this, all this green grass here, you see because the Nile splits, you can see that all the different splits that take place. So this is some prime, prime land. And who traveled there last week? His name was Joseph. He traveled there last week. So Joseph is what? Walking towards the line of Jesus, the Messiah. He's Jacob's son. Traveled there, and I told that story of Joseph, but this is where Israel is now located, or um, the, uh, the, Hebrew, like, the Hebrews are located. And they're located specifically under this town of Goshen, of where it's at. So it was a happy story last week. And with that happy story, we want to see what is going to take place, because it doesn't stay happy. As they were in Egypt, what happened? This is Exodus number 1, 6 through 14. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations had died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly because they exceedingly number, numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if we war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us, and leave the country. They're getting scared of all these people that are multiplying themselves. So they said, put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses and storehouse for Pharaoh. So they got these. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked, with them, worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all the hard later, the Egyptians used them, what? Ruthlessly. So here's a kind of a picture. They put them into slaves. And as they put them into slaves, how many years were they settled into slaves? They were settled in there for 400 years. So they were completely used to continue to build the, king of, the kingdom of, um, of Egypt. Now, we talked about last week that God was in control of everything. Is God in control of this? I mean, 400 years, if you start thinking about it, it's 300 years from the flood to Abraham. And then there's a little 150 years of Isaac and Jacob, and then also his son. So about 200 years that are involved there. And then all of a sudden, another 400 years 
which is extreme under this hard labor. Does God know what he's doing? Does God know what he's talking about? Last week we talked, or the first week we talked, no, it was last week we talked about Abraham, and he fell into a deep sleep as this covenant was taking place, and the Shekinah glory went through the passing of the ram, the calf, the cut that was split, and he was watching that, that God was going to go through the sacrifice. But there's interesting in this covenant that this is what it was said. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and the thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved, and what? Will be mistreated for 400 years. God is specifically giving them what is going to take place. So think about it for 400 years. Is if you are in this slave, this bondage, and you're being used by Egyptians, you're being treated completely ruthless, um, what are you going to think about? They were holding on to this passage. They are holding on to the promise that was given by God to Abraham that one day we're going to be out of it. We're going to be in it for 400 years, but one day we're going to be out of it because this is written down. 400 years given. Did they have the writing that was there? I believe that they do have the writing that was there. So, Genesis 15, but I will punish the nations they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with even greater possession. There is hope as they were slaves. Well, where is this hope at? This hope was found um, in a baby boy. See, what took place is that when Egyptians completely put them into slavery and completely annihilated their spirit, annihilated their time, annihilated everything as they put them in hard bondage and treated them ruthlessly, um, they were still afraid because they continued to number, continued to have more and more people come. More and more kids come. They kept on reproducing. In fact, they reproduced, according to the Bible, they reproduced so fast that the Egyptians got even more afraid and more afraid and more afraid. So they said, you know what we need to do? Let's take all the males, firstborn males, and let's just throw them in the Nile River. And the reason why is because we don't want, we don't want a war. <laughs> As I mentioned before, we don't want this war to take place. So they took all the babies and they started throwing them in the Nile River. And as they're killing all the babies, throwing them in the Nile River, there's one baby that's in particular right here that was sent into the Nile River. But this baby was not sent into the Nile River for the purpose of drowning. This baby was sent for a purpose of maybe somebody will rescue them. So when you look at the Nile River, you put a baby in a basket. Our picture in our mind, we're thinking, oh, you put the baby in the basket and the baby floats and hopefully the baby survives. It's actually more like this that takes place. What this did, they put the baby in the basket. And as they put the baby in the basket, they floated it by what? The Egyptians. And for the hope that somebody would allow this baby to live. And sure enough, he did. And when the queen of Egypt took the baby, prince of Egypt, queen of Egypt took the baby, what did she do? She said, I'm going to raise this baby as my own undercover that is my own child, even though it is not. So she starts raising Moses. And does Moses have any significance in Scripture whatsoever? Do you guys know anything about Moses? Yeah, everybody knows something about Moses. We know something's going to happen, don't we? The whole world knows something about Moses, because Moses is now going to change the earth. And how's he going to change the earth? Well, let's look at his life and see how he's going to change the earth. Moses' life can be broken up into 40 years. 40 years, the whole world's going to be different as a result of Moses. What does his life look like? The first 40 years of Moses' life, he was trained by what? the Egyptians to be a somebody. I am going to put this guy through the most understanding of art, 
of battle, of warfare. I'm going to put this guy through training that is going to make him the most powerful person in the world. Now, in this process of being trained, he wasn't only going to be trained, he was going to be the pharaoh of Egypt with what? An army. (laughs) A big army. In fact, the biggest army that is in the land. So 40 years, Moses was being trained to be a somebody. The next 40 years, Moses was trained by God to be a nobody. And then the last 40 years, Moses' life shows the world that God, what God does to nobodies. So this is a person that changed the world. And when we think of this person changing the world, we think of Moses as an absolutely amazing person. But I'll ask the question, was it him being an amazing person or was it an amazing God that was working with him? Was it an amazing God that used him? Was it an amazing God that did everything when Moses did absolutely nothing? Look at the 40 years. Moses was trained as he was trained. Uh, He knew that he was going to lead the people out. Why did he know that he was going to lead the people out? Because he was a Hebrew. And he's thinking, I'm going to be God's chosen people. And he started loving the Hebrews. And he was in the position to be able to lead them out. And there was one time that he was out in the fields and the Hebrews were slaves. And all of a sudden, one person was get, being beaten. One person was being brutally beaten. And what did Moses do? Moses grabbed the Egyptian that was beating him. And what did he do? He killed him. Destroyed him. Now after he destroyed him, he expected everybody in Egypt, all the Hebrews, all the slaves, to look at Moses and say, Oh, Moses, you're it. You're our deliverer. And he expected the force that all the Egyptians were afraid of. Because remember, they're afraid because there's a lot of guys that are being born. There's an army that's going to come against us. He was afraid, and they were going to jump onto Moses' boat. But then what took place? <laughs> they looked at him, and he started confronting some of the Hebrews, and they said, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian? He wasn't very popular. In fact, he started to notice that people knew that the Egyptian was killed by his hand, and it struck him with what? Fear, an extreme fear. Because now he's got the Egyptian army, and he also has the Hebrew possible army to lead them out. But now he's in the middle being like, if what I did, I might just be an absolute nobody. So what did he do? He fleed the land. And as he fled, whoa. And as he fled the land, I want to show you where the, I got the, I'm sorry. Oh, there it is. I don't know how that came up. So as he fled the land, he went to the land of Median, which is right here. So here's Goshen right here where Moses is from. This is where Egypt is at. And he took a land and he crossed the desert by foot and he went to Median. And why did he go to Median? He went to Median because there is going to be nobody that is going to find him and there's no hope of his return and there's nobody, everybody will just forget about him, that he even existed. They'll even assume that he is completely dead and we don't have to worry about it. So here he's the most powerful man in the land, but don't worry, he went over here and he becomes what? He becomes a, a shepherd. And when you look at Moses' life, says, you know, he accomplished so much in his life. Well, what did he accomplish for 40 years in the land of Median? He accomplished nothing. He accomplished nothing. What I mean by accomplished nothing is, yes, he did have some children. But he, has, he had some children. And what did he do? He just watched sheep. What Charles Swindoll calls this is he calls this um, God's boot camp. And what God's boot camp is, is that he was so educated, he was so trained, and he was so powerful, and God sent him to Median, and he went to Median for the purpose of getting him uneducated, untrained, and unpowerful, and completely reliable on nothing else but God. 
You see what God is doing? Is he's making a principle. Is, yeah, Moses could have easily led the people out in his position, but I'm going to do it a little bit different. And he goes out and then he has some of this spiritual boot camp of absolutely seeing nothing but goats, but sheeps. So for 40 years, Moses' education went where? It went down. For 40 years, Moses' education went where? Or, or Moses' power went where? It, it was gone. Can he go back and command the Egyptian army? No, he can't do anything. For 40 years, he lost everything that he had. And as he lost everything that he had, guess what he saw? He saw a burning bush. And when he saw a burning bush, he was in the burning bush. God was in the burning bush. And what did God say in the burning bush? He says, I want you to do what? I want you to go to Egypt. Now, if you think of this story, I don't know how you would respond if I was the top general and I could have led the people hands down in that position. But 40 years passed, and now I'm a nobody. How would you respond to a burning bush that says, now I want you to go back and do it? The way I would have responded, I would have said, God, where were you 40 years ago? I mean, if you think about it, God, I could have done it for you, and I could have done it for you absolutely hands down, piece of cake. All I had to do was take the Egyptian army, turn the Egyptian army, grab the Hebrew army. I own it all, and all the princes and the pharaohs and all the people that don't fight battles are completely at my disposal. But God does something different. Burning Bush says, go back. And what does Moses say? He says the words, who am I? Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And under the compulsion, he will let them go. And under the compulsion, he will drive them out of this land. Moses said the words, who am I? But God is saying the words, you are a nobody and you will not lead the people out. But let me introduce you to the person that will leave the person that will lead the people out. And I'm going to introduce you to this word right here. See what I will do to Pharaoh. And then he continues to speak. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Let me introduce you to the person that's going to lead him out because you're not going to lead him out, Moses. And I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not, I did take myself, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. I gave them the land of Canaan, the land which they had sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of their sons of Israel because of Egypt are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered their covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from the bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Then I, who's I? It's constantly going, Moses, this is not about you. It's going to be me. I will take you from the people, and I will be your God, and they shall be and I shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the, under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you to the land which I sojourn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. So think of this conversation that Moses is having at the burning bush. He says to God, who am I? You took away my education. And God throws him back in his face and says, let me introduce myself and let me introduce something that I will be doing. 
all the way through verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And then all of a sudden you see through verse 1, 6, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 8, 8, 8. I will bring, I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take, I will be, I will bring, I will give. Let me ask you a question. Who's going to lead the people out of Egypt? <laughs> Why did God get rid of Moses' education? The reason why God got rid of Moses' education is because Moses was not willing to let God work through him to accomplish something absolutely great. Now this is a set establishment of the way God works all the way through the Bible. In fact, let's look at the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, were they remarkably people? Remarkable people? I mean, were there the people that were in the, in the temple? Were there the people that were the greatest preachers? Were there the people that were going to change the world? John MacArthur said the only remarkable thing about the 12 disciples is they were extremely irremarkable. That's the only thing about it, that they're extremely irremarkable. But what is he doing? You see, God is going to do his business because it's not our story. It's God's story. And he took everything out of Moses to say, I'm going to do it my way, for my purpose, for my reason, and you have absolutely no power whatsoever if you don't rely completely and entirely on me. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I had given you, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God is, God's crazy. <laughs> what I mean by crazy, he's like, I will lead, I will do, I will do, therefore you do this oh, by the way, when you do this, I'm going to harden his heart so what everything you do doesn't even accomplish. That's what that verse says. The verse says that I am sending you into the battle and I am disarming you with everything but me and I'm even going to work the system of the people that are even against you. Why is this taking place? The reason why this is taking place is because God wants to get something done and he wants his name proclaimed, not ours. Many people teach that, you know, if you want to be like God, you need to be like Moses. You need to have the face of Abraham and be like Abraham. Or you need to be like David. You need to, these are the people you need to be and follow their leadership. Well, what's really taking place is that we need to just completely rely on God and let him do his work through us as we lay down our lives specifically for him. Because God has a mission in our life, and what his mission is, we have to see it more so than be it. Watch what happens when he goes into Egypt. When he goes into Egypt, God starts going to work. And as God starts going to work, he's going to attack somebody. And who's he going to attack? First thing he did is he turned the water into blood. The Nile River, as we talked about, was a god. A god that provides for the Egyptians. This was not just turning water into blood. This was an attack specifically on their God. They worshipped the Nile River. The Nile River provided them with food. The Nile River provided them with wealth. The Nile River provided them with life. And then all of a sudden, Moses comes in and says, ah, you got the wrong God. And what does he do? He turns the Nile into blood. It's like, what happened to our God? You see what's taking place? It's a fight between a God and a God. Let's go to the next one. What's the next one? Frogs. Uh, people go, oh boy, what a mess. That's a good way to lead people out. Frogs are horrible to lead 
people out. Because frogs are messy. You have to shovel them up and be disgusting. Well, that's not the reason why frogs came. The reason why frogs came is because, I'll tell you, Egyptians had a god just about for everything. And their goddess um, named Hecht was the god of resurrection. And so what happens is God says, oh, let me tell you what's going to take place with your god of resurrection, your goddess of Hecht. Um, is he's going to wreck so much, do some resurrection so much, that you're going to be absolutely sick about it because he's not the one in control. So what takes place? Frogs completely take over the land. It's got, the frogs are completely taking over the land. They're, these Egyptians are looking at, well, what happens to the goddess of Hecht? We don't want any more resurrection. You see, what's taking place is God is fighting against their God to say, I'm king of kings, I'm lord of lords. God didn't need Moses' army, and he didn't need Moses' position. He said, well, that's not what the war is against. This war is against between who's God and who's not. Here's petroglyphs that are um, showing the, the goddess of Hecht. Let's continue to go down. Lice and gnats, god of Geb. God of the earth, what did Moses do? He, or what did Aaron do? He grabbed the earth, he grabbed the, um, the, um, grabbed the sand, he threw it up in the air, and he threw it up in the air. What took place? Lice and gnats. Now, this was a God working against a God because the Egyptians' God had to be clean and had to be pure. And then all of a sudden, the goddess of Geb was turned into a whole bunch of gnats and polluted every single God in Egypt. How did it pollute every single God in Egypt? Have you ever been in a place where there's so much gnats that are getting in your ear and it's getting on your clothes and it's getting underneath your skin, uh, uh, lice that is actually in your hair and all these bugs that are absolutely all over you, nothing is clean. Well, Egyptians only worship clean. They only worship pure. So he took this god, the god of Geb, and he says, oh, I'm going to spit on all the gods that are around there. And Moses is continually making the statement, hold on a second, who is God? Let me show you who is God because that's what the argument is about. We need to go through these, but the goddess of flies is, is Kephar, god of creation. Go fast longer. Diseased livestock. I was in India, and when I was in India, we're in a city. And as we're in a city, this is like four years ago, we're in the city. Do you know what was walking around the city? Cows. Cows were walking in the city. And I'm like, I keep my cows in a pasture. Why don't you just hit one of those cows? And they said, oh no, you don't hit one of those cows. Those are holy cows. <laughs> you heard about holy cows? There's a statement that comes from a, a holy cows because cows are worshipped as a god of fertility, but only not a god of fertility, a god of dance, a god of pleasure, a god that provides, a god that gives. Well, of course, the Egyptians, Hathor and Horus, this is a heifer and then a, it's a cow and then a bull that they completely and entirely worshipped. So we say, oh boy, it's so horrible that livestock got, got, um, um, got maggots on it and got, not maggots, but got boils on it and was destroyed and was attacked and they started dying. It's so horrible, but why is this happening? I am the Lord God and I will lead out. Here's a couple other pictures of this. What's the next one? Isis. Isis is the boils on the people. Isis is the goddess of medicine. People are supposed to be taken care of. So what do they do in Egypt? They went to take care of the people. And what does he do? He's attacking the god of Isis that is happening, that's taking place. Here's the, god of I the goddess of Isis, the goddess of medicine. But who's in control? <laughs> God's saying, you're not. I'm the goddess in control. Here's another one of Isis coming through. God of hail and hailfire. Newt is the goddess of the sky. This is a goddess of the dark sky where all the stars are taking place in the darkness. 
and that is when that goddess is worshipped. But the stars are no longer there. The stars turn into a hell, and literally hell fire. Their gods are coming down on their head. Their gods have no control. The goddess of locusts, the goddess of Seth, the goddess of storms, getting absolutely everywhere. Goddess of Seth, here's a picture of the goddess of Seth and storms. And then darkness, this was the most horrific thing you can possibly do to Egypt. And why it's the most horrific thing you could possibly do to Egypt is because they worship the sun, Ra, which is God. The sun was their God. So as this sun, the most powerful thing in the universe, is there and they are displaying worship and praise and glory to it, all of a sudden it shuts down on whose command? On Moses' command. And what's he saying? You're not God. I am the Lord that even commands God. And he put his God, put their God, literally away. But remember what happens is Pharaoh's heart continues to be hardened. And then we got, oh, here's a Ra, the sun god. And then we got the last one, the death of the firstborn. And what was the significant about the death of the firstborn? Pharaohs are deities. Pharaohs are God. Their firstborn is what carries the name to the next. The firstborn is what carries the generation to the generation. The secondborn does not carry the value that the firstborn literally carries, and all of a sudden, plague took place. When the plague took place, the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's son, Pharaoh's god, Pharaoh's deity, died. Now what does that look like? It looks like, oh my goodness, Pharaoh might not be the god that he thinks he is. His son might not be the god that he thinks he is, because Moses is making these commands, and as he's making these commands, they're coming true. You see where the fight is at? The fight is between gods more so than between powers at hands and armies that are taking place. I've got to go through all my notes here because I'm starting to look through there. Okay, we got, here's the Pharaoh as, as the goddess that, that does happen and does take place. Now I want to look at the, um, the Passover. And the Passover where the son, uh, the firstborn of Egypt died. And I just want to look at some passages, read some passages in regards to this Passover because it has a lot of significant meaning. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods. What's he doing? Judgment on the people? No. Judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, after this, I'm just explaining what took place on Passover, is that the Hebrews in Goshen, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to kill a lamb, they're supposed to put blood on their door, and then according to this passage, if you have blood on the door, the plague will literally pass over you. Why? Because of the blood that is on the door. That's why it's coming there. So this next verse that takes place after this, because what's going to happen, this is the one that's leading them out of Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. This is right after he gives the directions. I want you to put blood on the door, and then I will, the plague will pass under you, and you will not die. This is a day to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival. You talked about festivals today. You should celebrate it as a festival to the Lord and a lasting ordinance. And I will tell you that it has been celebrated by the Jews all the way through and continued. The Passover, the day that blood was wiped on the door, and the day that the plague passed over people 
and people ended up finding life. And then consistently, they celebrate this holiday. But I want to look at one time in Scripture when they're celebrating this holiday. This is John 19. It was the day of preparation of Passover week. This is the celebration of Passovers. Who is important to the Passovers? The Jews are very, very important. And the priest, the high priest, Caiaphas, what? He's in charge of the Passover week or the Passover celebration. So I was in the day of preparation for Passover week. About the sixth hour, he is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. What were they doing on the sixth hour on this specific Passover week? On this holiday of Passover week where you put blood over the door, Caiaphas, the chief priest that should be leading the Passover, and everybody else were not celebrating the Passover. They're actually planning a murderer. And as they're planning a murderer, they gave it to this person named Jesus Christ. They gave him to Pilate, and they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him, crucify him as your king. Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered, it's Passover. We're supposed to be celebrating. They're wanting to kill somebody specifically on Passover. Who was it? It was Christ. You see this one holiday that takes place all the way through the entire Bible and all the way even through now is pointing directly that he is the blood of the Lamb that will bring the salvation of souls, but still it is so rejected. But as people are going to become free, Christ is the answer, we're still pulling it away. We're still rejecting it. So Passover took place. And as Passover took place, they left. They left Egypt. They said, we're done. <laughs> Leave. It's too much. Your God is God. So as they left, where did they left? This is their journey. They left the town of Goshen, and they left right here. Now, as they left right here, there is controversy. This is, their, this is the place where they traveled. But this is a place where some scholars believe that they traveled. There's another place. This, I'll just show you. This is where they believe they traveled. They traveled right here from the, leaving the town of Goshen. And then they caught, crossed the Red Sea here. I know we're going fast and we can't even talk about the Red Sea. I'd love to, but we're not going to. They crossed the Red Sea here. They came down to Mount Sinai here. And they came up to the land of Canaan here for the purpose of going to um, take the land of Canaan, which is going to be called Israel. So that's one view. The other view says, no, they didn't go there. They did not cross the Red Sea here. They actually crossed the Red Sea here, and they went up to Median. So what happens is they left here, and then they crossed over here, and then they crossed the Red Sea. They went to the town of Median, and actually Mount Sinai is here because Mount Sinai is not yet completely located. As this is the mountain called specifically um, Mount Sinai. But I'm, I'm not going to stay with this one. And the reason why I would not believe in this one, but if you ever watch the Ten Commandments, they teach it because they went down to the town of Median, it was the same place that he was the shepherd. Um, I don't believe it. The reason why is because there was not much time for Pharaoh to take all, of his, uh, all his army all the way to here before they crossed the Red Sea, before all of them destroyed. It just wasn't that time. It had to have taken place right here. So we'll stick, we'll stick specifically to that one as we're looking at that. So let's continue to read. In the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, it's the third month, they couldn't cross a desert in three months, just to let you know. On that very day, they came to the desert of Mount Sinai. They could not have made it across that desert. After they set out from Raphidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So what does that mountain look like? We don't know exactly what that mountain looks like, but that looks like a, a good mountain that we can look at. 
Mount Sinai is specifically where the Shekinah glory rested. A cloud and fire rested above Mount Sinai, and there is instructions in the Bible that don't even let your cows, (laughs) I say cows because my cows get out and I can't control them, don't let your cows, don't let your sheep, don't let your livestock even touch the Mount Sinai. It is a holy mountain, and if you touch it, you will immediately die. Mount Sinai is where they received the law, the Ten Commandments. I just want to go back to this picture right here. We're talking right here is sin. And I'm talking right here is Mount Sinai. So they travel down here and they're sitting specifically at Mount Sinai. It's where we receive the Ten Commandments. Now, I can give you a long explanation of the Ten Commandments, um, but how many laws were there in regards to the Ten Commandments? Is there ten? Well, there was ten laws that pushed 613 laws laws. There's something called the Levitical law, and I'm going to, tell, I'm going to walk through the, the whole book of Leviticus in about 10 seconds. The Levitical law is 613 laws of this is what you are supposed to do for the purpose of worshiping God. That's the book of Leviticus. And the Ten Commandments sat on top of it. So let me ask you a question. Do you guys obey the Ten Commandments? You should. I mean, that's, that's, we should obey the Ten Commandments. But do you guys obey the Levitical law? Well, the Ten Commandments is driving the Levitical law. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, four of them is what? Your love relationship with God. And six of them is your love relationship with others. And when Jesus used the words that if you love God and you love others, you don't even have to practically look at that law. The reason why? is because it would take place. If you love others, you're not going to murder others. If you love others, you're not going to steal from others. If you love God, you're not going to have any other gods before him. Do you see how Jesus just said, I'm going to consume this whole law, love God, and love others. But then the Levitical law is pushing towards our worship to God. And do you obey the Levitical law? If I went out and I killed one of my cows and butchered it for the sake of worship, I could probably get turned in. Or if I did it to even my dogs, or if we did it to even a goat, the thing, we don't obey the Levitical law. Well, you ask the question, why is the Levitical law there if we're not obeying it? Why is there so much consumed about the Levitical law and even the Ten Commandments as given to the people that are going to Israel? Why is it important? Um, I just want to give you fast reasons why it's important as we're continuing to travel. The Mosaic law reveals God's holiness. You shall not approach me unless you are going to be walking on blood, and I will tell you that Jesus Christ has not come yet. Therefore, I'm going to push you towards Jesus Christ, and you will not come to me without the shedding of blood. There's no remission. Therefore, you better kill animals. You better kill the goat. You better kill the lamb. You better kill the sheep. The Mosaic Law defines sin and exposes the heinousness of it. The Mosaic Law confirms our need to be separated from sin. The Mosaic Law shows us how God's plan unfolds gradually and progressively. The Mosaic Law expounds on God's two basic commands, love God and love others. The Mosaic Law demonstrates the value of an intercession between God and man. The Mosaic Law shows the efficiency of the substitutionary sacrifice. Do you see where it's pointing? It's pointing specifically to Jesus. And when you look at the Mosaic Law, what do you see inside the Mosaic Law? You see Christ himself. You see the, uh, the relationship that God has with us. 
and with that relationship he has with us, it's going to take a substitutionary death. It's going to show the heinousness of sin. The Mosaic Law provides many pictures of Christ and his redemption. The Mosaic Law predicts that God will not forsake his children. You keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. The Mosaic Law establishes the principle of sowing and reaping. The Mosaic Law provides many pictures of Christ and his redemption. You see, the Mosaic Law has a lot that gives us. What does it give us? It gives us a specific revelation of who God is, his relationship to mankind, and where Jesus is going to play the role that is going to happen. Galatians 3.19 says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It is completely entirely about what? The seed that had come, the law was put into effect through the angels by a mediator for the purpose of giving us an understanding of us, God, and Jesus in the role of our salvation. The holiness of God, the sinful man, and Jesus in the role of our salvation. So we just, I said I was going to go through the book of Leviticus in about 30 seconds. Well, that was about three minutes. So sorry, there you go through the book of Leviticus. Luke 24, 44. These are Jesus' words himself. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about Jesus in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is claiming the entire Old Testament. And entire Old Testament, according to this passage, is specifically pointing to him. So we just travel through the law. There's something else we need to talk about because there's going to be a temple that's going to be built. And this is not the temple. This is called the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there's, through the book of Exodus, you see some very specific um, things, pieces of furnitures that you need to put in there, so specific behaviors that need to happen for the purpose of entering the Holy of Holies, which is located right there where the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ark of Covenant rests. So just going through this really fast, you have the gate, you have the bronze altar, you have the laver, you have the lampstand, you have the table, the altar, and you have the Ark of the Covenant. The gate is the place of what? Entry. The bronze altar is the place of reconciling. Labor is the place of cleansing. The lampstand is the place of light. The table is the place of dining. The altar is the incense, is the place of prayer. And the ark is the place of fellowship. You see what's taking place as well? This thing, entire thing was built for the purpose of our worship to God and then Jesus' completion of what has taken place and what is happening. I just want to look through the book of Numbers. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of the meeting, some distance from it, each under a standard with the banners in his families. If you're going to worship me, there's a whole bunch of restrictions that need to take place. And going through the tabernacle was all the restrictions. But now he's saying, whenever you set up the tent, because it was a tent, whenever you set up the tent, I want you to even have a located structure if you're going to worship me. So this located structure is found in Numbers 2, 1 through 2. It's going to talk about the located structure. On the east towards the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under the standard, the leader of the people of Judah, of Nashon, son of Amadab. Is, um, his divisions are supposed to be 74,600. That's interesting, isn't it? Bear with me for a little bit. The tribe of Ishkar, 
These are the tribes of Israel. We'll camp next to them. The leader of the people of Ishkar is Nathaniel, son of Zur. His divisions, numbers 54,400. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? Oh my goodness. Let's just speed it up a little bit. Talk about this whole chapter that's found in Numbers. Manasseh, there's supposed to be 32,000 that is supposed to set up their camp. Ephraim is supposed to be 40,000. Benjamin is supposed to be on the west tribe of 35,000. I'm just giving you a whole bunch of information that is just really interesting, isn't it? But after all this information is put together, the tabernacle is in the center, and all the camps are specifically set up. What's it look like? You know, it looks like that. <laughs> that if you look at the numbers that were just all mentioned, all the numbers of the camps of Gad, of Simeon, and Reuben, and the east side of Judah and Ishkar, these numbers are the same here, these numbers are short here, and these numbers are specifically even long there. Now, this is not divine, but it's really interesting that God is all over this tabernacle where the Shekinah glory is at, and the purpose of being all over the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory is at is there is going to be a redemptive son that is going to come that's going to give us complete access to God. This tabernacle was given to us, and the law was given to us, is the access of God is difficult because we are sinful individuals. So when you read the book of Leviticus, there should be nothing but an oppression that takes place of this is ugly and I am incapable of completing this and there's no way I can do it. And as there's no way you can do it, you've finally taken the steps of salvation because that's when we turn to the one who did do it, which was Jesus Christ, and then, um, and then died in our stead and, uh, and rose again for us. So there's the law... <laughs> There is the tabernacle, and let's seal it off with the continued story. They received the law, they built the tabernacle. Every time they walked, they set up the tabernacle, they set up their tents, and they continued to go where? They continued to go to specifically the promised land. Why were they going to the promised land? Because it was a land that was promised to them with, with milk um, and honey. It was their land. Let me just close this story off on this land. As they're traveling up the lowest land, so, so here's, the, here's the dead, oh, sorry, I gotta, here's the Dead Sea right here. This is where they came up from Mount Sinai. They came down from right here, and then they came up, and they're looking at the land. They're scouting out the land. They go over to the land of Negev, and when they went to the land of Negev, they said, we need to figure out what in the world is gonna, what we're going to have to do to get the land. And as they're going to try to get the land, guess what they found? They found a lot of resistance. Spies went in there for 40 days, and when they went in there for 40 days, they saw a what they needed to do, how big the people were, how big the soldiers were, before they went in and they conquered the land that God was going to give them. Here's the response from the spies. They gave Moses this account, because the spies went up to say, well, we're going to have to go to war, because if we're going to get this land, we've got to go to war. Here's their account. When we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does not flow with milk and honey, it does flow with milk and honey, here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw some descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites, they live in the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, they live in the hill country, and the Canaanites, they live near the sea along the Jordan. See, who led them out of Egypt? God led them out of Egypt. Who gave them the law? God gave them the law for saying that he's in control. Who gave them the tabernacle? 
tabernacle is God and the smoke is continue, cloud continue to move with them. God is completely and entirely with them. But when they go into God's land, what do they see? I see something bigger than God. According to this report, it's what they're thinking. But the man who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land was explored, devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. The Nephilim is who? I, I can't explain the Nephilim right now, sorry. They're big guys. I mean, really, really big guys. Yeah, we find them in Noah. We, we won't explain them. Uh, yeah, anyway, we seemed like the grasshoppers in their eyes, and we looked all the same. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Here's a command. We have God, but we saw something else. God took us out, but we needed us to do it. These are the stories that are given us. And all of a sudden, they come up to it, and they say, it's going to be in our power that's going to be done. And God, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua we're saying, don't you figure it out? Haven't you seen the Red Sea that is open? And these words of restrictions came back to him. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old and more, will be counted in the census and who have grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Juphanah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. What did they do? They came up to that land. They spied it out. When they spied it out, they say, God, you're not big enough to allow us to conquer your plan and what you want. They came in fear, and as they came in fear, God says, you haven't figured it out. What you haven't figured it out is that it's my war, it's my battle, it's my hand, and all the I wills that I said to Moses, I will do there, and you still haven't figured it out. They came back here and they wandered in this desert, this circle right here. It's not very far, is it? It's not this desert here. It's this circle right here. They wandered for 40 years for one purpose, because they didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that God had the strength. God had the power, and they feel like they needed it on their own. So if we look at the story of Moses, because we just gave you a lot of information, but as we're looking at this, this story of Moses, you do have to ask the question, is it all about me? Is it all about my strength? Is it all about my plan? And is it all about my power? This biblical answer is no. It's all about who God is, what he wants to do, and he's looking for somebody that says, I will do it with you. And there's a lot of people that say, well, no, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And God's saying, all right, maybe I'll find somebody else. What are we going to do when we do that? We just circle around the desert just for the purpose of dying. The challenge in the story of Moses is to find God in his strength, in his power, and in his will, and stop looking at us and our strength, our power, and our will, because it's all under his hands anyway. A lot of information, but amazing stories. We'll finish the story of Moses next week, and then we'll go through Joshua of how we're going to conquer the land of Israel. Okay? You guys are dismissed.